0: Allison and I have had a surreal week. We had to, as teachers, put all of our content for two weeks worth of classes online, communicate changes with our students, and deal along with the rest of the world with a lot of uncertainty. In times like these, we're being asked to make lots of changes. We're being asked to keep our distance from others, to stay inside when possible, not together in large groups, to have faith that we will get through this. Unfortunately, Allison and I need a favor from you as well to bear with us as everything around us is changing. For the next few weeks, we will sadly be recording separately. I from my home and Allison from hers. We appreciate you Sleuth so much and want to continue to provide you with cases. After all, our goal is continued hope and closure for these cases. And especially in times like these, we want to continue in our small way of helping those families to keep their family member in our hearts and minds. Thank you for bearing with us and for understanding we care about you. Stay together, united in the human spirit, even if not physically. Stay safe. Now, on to this week's episode. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. I think we all have a picture in our heads of what living the American dream looks like. We picture white picket fences, green, perfectly manicured lawns, a beautiful house, a nice car, a few kids, and a happily married couple. Every time I hear the words American Dream, I think of The Great Gatsby. Jay Gatsby worked so hard to overcome poverty, just for a chance to be with Daisy. He was willing to sacrifice everything for love because that was his American Dream. Achieving the American Dream isn't easy, and honestly, it looks different for every single one of us. But regardless of what your American Dream looks like, You have to work hard at it. It takes dedication. It takes guts. It takes strength. The family in our story today appeared to have it all. They had the nice house, the beautiful family. They worked hard for that life. A life that was shattered, a family that was left broken. When you've worked your whole life to provide a good life for your kids and your wife, only to have that ripped out of your hands, what's left? Tears? Regret? Questions? When you're the sole survivor, how do you go on? According to the Cheshire Murders and the Illusion of Safety by Alexander Nazarian, quote, If hope is the thing with feathers, then dread is the thing with claws, end quote. And sadly, Sleuth the claws of society came out in this case. Before I begin our show today, I want to remind you guys about the challenge Allison and I have going on. You all were awesome at getting us to our 15 written comment goal, and you did it really fast. So we wanted to up the ante. This one is a lofty goal, but we know that we can do it together. We want to get 150 ratings on iTunes. Right now we have 78, so we are aiming to almost double that now. But it only takes a split second. If you're listening to us on iTunes, click that five-star rating. We have listeners from everywhere, from all over the world, so while this is a lot to ask, we know that you guys can do it. It may take a little longer than last time, but when we get to that 150, we'll do another bonus episode. Just make sure to follow us on all of our social media accounts, Coffee and Cases Podcast on Facebook, or at Coffee Cases Podcast on Instagram, or as always, listen in each week to know when that bonus episode will air. Okay, sleuth hounds, let's dive into today's episode. Alright, before we get started, I do want to let you guys know just a couple things. One, I'm at home, so you are likely to hear the pitter-patter of puppy dog feet, the occasional bark, my husband is in the other room watching Survivor, so you may hear some of that. Um, Just a little heads up about the show. There are a lot of names in here that I can't pronounce, and so I'm sure I'm going to pronounce them wrong, but know that I tried and the story still stands. We also live super close to an airport slash National Guard base so you could hear airplanes flying over. So again this is a big change but hopefully it's just for a few weeks and we're going to make it through. So let's get on to the show today. The Petit family appeared to be the all-American family. According to the Cheshire Murders and the Illusion of Safety article, Jennifer was a nurse and she was 48. Dr. Petit Jr. was 50 and was a celebrated doctor in town. Their house was a beige two-story colonial home. It wasn't anything super extravagant. Their daughters looked like the girl next door. They looked innocent in all of their pictures. There were no pictures I saw of them with the infamous duck face. Haley was 17, and she was going to attend Dartmouth. Michaela was 11, and she loved watching Rachel Ray. According to the True Crime Times, Haley had just graduated from Miss Porter's school. It was a very prestigious school, with graduates like Gloria Vanderbilt and Jacqueline Kennedy. She was headed to Dartmouth in the fall, where, like her father, she too wanted to study medicine. Haley also worked tirelessly to raise funds for multiple sclerosis research because her mother suffered from that. Haley was often described as humble. Little sister Michaela attended Chase Collegiate School and planned to take over Haley's fundraising duties when she left to go to college. Michaela is described as thoughtful and gentle, and she loved spending time with her family. Their days started off like any other— Sleuthhounds, I can see the family enjoying that beautiful summer day at 300 Sorghum Meal Drive in Cheshire, Connecticut. Haley had just got home from the beach. Mom Jennifer and Michaela had gone to stop and shop a local grocery store to get things to make dinner that night. because as I mentioned before, Michaela loved to cook. She loved Rachel Ray, so she took it upon herself to cook her family dinner that night. When Dr. Petit, or Bill, called on his way home from a round of golf, his wife asked him to stop by the farm stand to get them some some fresh veggies. All seemed normal, but sadly, it wasn't. Danger was closer than this family ever imagined. Sleuthhounds, we talk about a lot of gruesome stuff on this case, and I want to let you know before we get any further in, this case does get very gruesome and very graphic, so listener discretion is advised. It takes a cruel person to kill a grown man or a woman. It takes an evil person to kill a child. And the men that we're going to talk about today in this story are evil. We've talked about a lady who was possibly killed by her husband, a young woman that may have been possessed. But it's stories like this that involve children that really stick with me. Several articles I read spent a great deal of time focusing on the life of our two murderers, Stephen Hayes and Joshua Karmitz-Wajewski. Sleuth hounds, I'm honestly not going to give them the time of day to try to justify the horrible things that you're about to hear. I'm not going to go into details of how Hayes, who, according to some, was abused by his babysitter, or or Carmen Spojetsky, who was adopted by a loving and wealthy family but had oppositional defiant disorder, because, honestly, none of those things justify what they did to this family that night. The Cheshire Murders and the Illusion of Safety article says, quote, They weren't people-herders, but rather stuff-takers. They dealt drugs and took drugs. They were, until that night... Two down-and-out white guys in a state with some of the richest white people in the nation. They later said that they thought the robbery at 300 Sorghum Mill Drive would be a simple transaction conducted with minimal violence, end quote. But as you're getting ready to find out, this case was everything but minimal. It was that seemingly innocent trip to the local grocery store that was the turning point for our family today. As Jennifer and Michaela were walking out of the store, Carmen Svojeski noticed them. He took note of how nice their car was. He imagined the house that they must live in. It must have been a beautiful house. He craved to be in a house like that, so he followed them home. He was impressed by their house, like he had imagined. It was nice, and the family seemed well off. This was a perfect place to get some extra cash. By the time Bill got home at 7.15, Michaela had made pasta. But on the other side of town, Hayes and Carmen Svodzetsky met up in a parking lot of a bar to plan out what they thought would be a simple robbery. After dinner, Bill took the Sunday paper into the sunroom, while the girls settled into the living room to watch one of their favorite TV shows, Army Wives. When the show ended at about 11 p.m., Haley went up to her room, and Michaela snuggled up to Jennifer in her parents' bed with her brand new Harry Potter book. Flashing back to Hayes and Carmen Svalchetsky, they watched as people left the bar where they sat. They creeped on people as they withdrew money from the nearby ATM. Time and time again that night, they were disappointed by the little amount of money people were were withdrawing from that very ATM. So they drove to the very nice house Carmen Svalchetsky had seen earlier that day. It was now nearly 3 a.m. in the morning. Meanwhile, Bill was asleep on the sofa room couch. Hayes and Carmen Svalchetsky... "'Found him asleep there. "'Sleuthhounds, I can picture the scene they looked in on. "'I can see Bill asleep with a newspaper in his hand, "'his head tilted slightly to the side as he quietly snored. "'I can imagine him dozing in peaceful bliss. "'Maybe he was dreaming about their upcoming family vacation. "'I can see the terror in his eyes "'as he suddenly awoke to Carmen Sfajetsky "'beating him over the head with a baseball bat.' The doctor awoke, horribly confused. He must have said things like, Who are these guys? What are they doing? Where's my family? Bill was on blood thinners, you see. So he would have bled more than the average person. According to some accounts, he lost several pints of blood. The two men tied him up and later took him to the basement, where they bound him to a pipe. Upstairs, Michaela was asleep next to her mom. She'd fallen asleep reading that very same Harry Potter book. Haley was snoozing in her own bed. All three women were bound with pillowcases over their heads. Bill refused to sleep. He listened for any sign of movement as the long hours passed. Hayes and Carmen Swajetsky ransacked the home. This beautiful and nice home was sure to be home of thousands of dollars. There had to be a safe somewhere, right? Wrong. After all that searching, they only found approximately $130 in Haley's wallet. What they thought must have been a house overflowing with material riches gave them nothing. Nothing until they ran across the couple's bank statement. Even though their search had left them empty-handed, they had hope that the petite checking account would give them the money they wanted. So they decided to wait until the bank opened and take Jennifer there to withdraw $15,000. Finally, around 9 in the morning, Bill heard Jennifer's voice He heard her saying that she needed his checkbook if she were going to be able to withdraw the money. So he put two and two together and knew that they were headed towards the bank. Hayes and Jennifer, that is. I'm sure he had a surge of hope. Surely going out in public would be the fatal mistake that these two men would make. Surely someone would be alerted, and surely his family would be rescued. Hayes took Jennifer to a Bank of America branch where she withdrew $15,000 even though several reports claimed she didn't have $15,000 in that bank account. The clerk could tell she was in danger and gave her the money anyway. In the midst of withdrawing that money, she was able to tell the bank teller that something was amiss at her house. The teller told a manager, who called the police. The call came in at about 9.21 a.m. Quote, we have a lady who's in our bank right now who says her husband and children are being held at their house. The manager said, adding that the woman who withdrew the exorbitantly large sum looked, quote, petrified, end quote. Back at home, Bill heard a loud thump upstairs in the living room. He was quoted in saying, quote, it was like someone was throwing 20 or 50 pound sacks on the living room floor, end quote. According to Dad Rebuild's life after family was bound, tortured, and murdered by Marine Callahan, he heard a man say, quote, you're all right. Don't worry. It's all going to be over in a few minutes, end quote. Bill said, quote, I felt a major jolt of adrenaline and thought, it's now or never. In my mind, at that moment, I thought they were going to shoot all of us. My heart felt like it was beating 200 beats per minute, end quote. We now know that that loud thump was Michaela hitting the living room floor. Carmen Swajetsky forced her to perform oral sex on him. And as if that weren't disgusting enough, he captured pictures of it on his cell phone. Hayes would later testify that Carmen Svaljeski ordered him to, quote, square things up, which he did on the living room floor when he raped Jennifer. The girls were then bound and covered with gasoline. So remember, sleuthhounds, the initial 911 call was made around 921 that morning when Jennifer left the bank. Most articles I read said that the bank transaction Two, Jennifer's rape took around 23 minutes. That's a lot of time. So where were the police? In the article The Cheshire Murders and the Illusion of Safety, it says, quote, It remains unexplained why, as the police circled the house at 300 in Sorghum Mill Drive, nobody ever thought to knock on the door, ring the bell, just call the house phone. Something so simple could have saved three lives, end quote. Sadly, sleuth hounds, that knock didn't come. Court documents say that the way police responded to that crime was inadequate, that they wasted so much time setting perimeters up before they even approached the house. There were were reports that several police officers were close to the house but never approached the home. I'll let you all make the call, but to me, I think more could have been done by the police force and perhaps the story I'm telling you today would have ended differently. Remember, Bill's still in the basement. And according to many sources I read, Bill wore through his hand restraints by squatting down and standing up over and over again until that pipe finally wore his restraints enough that he was able to break free. At 9.51 a.m., a bloodied Bill emerged from his basement. His feet were still bound. So imagine this. He rolled across his lawn towards the house of a neighbor who emerged looking confused because he did not recognize the bloodied form before him as we talked about bill was on blood thinner and bled much more than the average person would have so i can only imagine the scene his neighbor saw as he approached his neighbor a police officer walked over because remember they are near the house at this point Bill was so unrecognizable that the policeman didn't know if he was a victim or a suspect. Bill was finally able to get out a strangled, the girls are inside. Before police had time to react, Hayes and Carmen Svaljeski burst out of 300 Sorghum Mill Drive. They had stolen the family SUV and were trying to run away from the scene of the crime. However, their efforts came to a quick end when the SUV hit a police car. The two were quickly arrested. Now the family home was up in flames. I can picture the despair on Bill's face as he watched his life burn. I can't imagine his heartbreak, though. By the time firefighters made it inside the house, it was too late. All the bodies had been tied up before the fire was set. Haley, who had been tied to her bed, had been able to break free of the bonds around her hands and was found on the staircase with her feet still tied. She was undoubtedly going to save her sister or her mother. She died of smoke inhalation. Little Michaela was still tied to her bed when the firefighters found her. She too had died from smoke inhalation. Jennifer was also found tied up, but unlike her daughters, she died of strangulation, not smoke inhalation. Her lungs showed no signs of carbon monoxide. It later came out in court that Jennifer was strangled after being raped. Sleuth hounds, this leaves me speechless. I can't imagine what it was like for Bill, the only survivor, to have to relive this day in court over and over again. Many reports said that he had to walk out of the courtroom, and my heart shatters for him. Now, Hayes and Carmen Spodzetsky were both convicted and sentenced to death, but sadly, Connecticut overturned the death penalty. While this story is heartbreaking, Bill is the testimony of true strength. I can't imagine how hard it would be to carry on when your entire world was stolen from you. How easily do we give up when the first inconvenience comes our way? It's easier sometimes to give up, it seems, than to keep going. We've all been through trials and have all suffered loss. Our losses are not what define us, but rather, our resolve does. Bill could have easily given up, but he didn't. He kept going, and to me, that's the biggest testimony of his love. He lived for Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela because they couldn't. He lives so that they aren't forgotten. Bill's a daddy again, and to me, that's beautiful. I'm sure he sees his girls and his son smile or maybe hears them when his son laughs. They will never be too far from his memory. I will leave you today, my sleuth hounds, with this beautiful quote by Sylvan Kames and Rabbi Jack Ramirez. "Out of the blueness of the skies and in the warmth of the summer, we remember them." End quote. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. (sighs) Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49. perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.